President Pavlopoulos, Mrs. Pavlopoulou, uh, distinguished guest friends, Iana Erkesakorja, Erin Gaitel Shias, Midlam, Firkin Fulcha, Erro Villig, Ermahan Haynes, the son of Van Kaler, Saivin, Agus Mid, Eglakun Bailishan, Honor, Don Quarter Special Tatana Nacht, Oktaran, Ne Poblak Dalianok, Negreaga. It is such a very great pleasure to, for Sabina and I, and to invite, to thank all of you for coming to join us here. Both, both of us and our invited guests are, of course, honoured by your presence here in, in, in Oris and Octoron President Pavlopoulos. It has been the home of all Irish presidents since the office of Octoron Heron was established in our 1937 constitution. Virkin Falcher wrote, from my heart, the warmest of welcome to you and your wife and those travelling with you. It's a very great pleasure, of course, to return the hospitality you showed Sabina and I when we were in Athens last October, when I was given the honour to deliver the third Aristotle address, and where too, under your expert chairmanship, President Pavlopoulos, together with another 11 presidents from around the European Union, we met as the Areolus Group, and we had an opportunity to discuss those pressing matters that concern all of the people of the European Union and beyond. And of course, Sabina and I, and those travelling with me, retain fresh in our minds our most wonderful state visit to Greece in 2018. It was such a memorable occasion for us. And as I reflect on the Aristotle address, I greatly appreciate the special privilege that it was for you to, ad to address you and others in the unique and historic setting of the Stoa of At Atalos in the ancient Agora. Reflecting on our visit to the Agora, I was struck by its significance in the history of ancient Athens and for democracy itself as a gathering place for discourse and ideas. Delivering the Aristotle address at that site was, for me, a moving experience, aware as I am, of the debt we all owe through the generations to that founding exchange of ideas, that pursuit of truth and beauty in its wholeness of mind and body that was and is the Greek contribution, and how we must be grateful to, to those from other cultures and beliefs, including those Islamic scholars, who would later translate and protect that Greek thought for us throughout the ages, thus leaving it as legacy for us, even after their own expulsion from their location in Europe, a legacy of translation of thought that thus survived to transcend oceans and borders, and may I say bigotry. <clears throat> However, it is important to stress that neither contemporary Ireland nor contemporary Greece have fallen from any previous golden age. Having the foundation myths as legacy must not ever become a source for a false contest between what is ancient and what is contemporary. It would be an enormous omission for me not to refer to the influence of that great legacy of Greece on the arts in Ireland. So many Irish playwrights from John Millington Singh, William Butler Yeats, George Bernard Shaw, and on to Brian Friel, Tom Murphy, Mary Elizabeth Burke Kennedy and Marina Carr, who are with us this evening, 
so many in the modern period, as well as the major poets, including Seamus Heaney, Brendan Kennelly, Tom Poland, Michael Longley, and Cartier Dorgan, have all published work based on the Athenian tragedies. And then there is the critical scholarship, too, in such work as that of Professor Brian Arkins, Professor Fran Arur, Professor John Dillon, all of whom I'm happy to say are here with us this evening. Greece is a country and a people that has given and continues to give, I emphasise, so much to Europe, indeed to the world, by way of its contribution to civilization, both ancient and contemporary, in culture, aesthetics and philosophy, including, as I've mentioned, some of the most important founding discourses on democracy itself. And in acknowledging that ancient contribution, I hasten to say it is also a heritage foundation stone of that house contemporary Greek and Irish people wish to make of our European Union, a house that can be energised by possibility as much as history. So I hope, therefore, President Pavlopoulos, that this return state visit of Greece to Ireland will prove to be for you and all of those travelling with you a memorable and enjoyable one. For our connection, of course, is not simply one of the sharing of rich symbolic works of thought and myth. The long and profound connections between our countries should enable us in the contemporary period and in the decades to come to work together in the crafting of a union of European publics that will have the capability to recognise, value and celebrate Europe in all its diversity and possibilities. A European Union that we might offer, not only as a regional achievement, but because of its potential for far-seeing humanity, a global intergenerational exemplar. For the very term union challenges, as it is a term that is meaningless if it does not acknowledge an equality of voice in common decision-making, in the sharing of prospects, welfare and challenges. The term union challenges all of those dichotomized notions of strong and weak North or Mediterranean economies. To give the union meaning requires a generous sharing of capacity for transcendence beyond interests that might be condemned by borders. The election of new presidents of the European Commission and European Parliament allows us to reflect on the future of Europe and what kind of Europe we wish to inhabit and craft for future generations. There is so much that we share. Our peoples have had to struggle for their independence. Both Greece and Ireland will mark important anniversaries of 1821 and 1921 on our respective paths to independence. And I'm sure that over the coming period, we will find ways of reflecting on that shared history, preserving the inventive humanistic values in our peoples and our cultures to give an ethical inclusive dimension to life, memory, and a truthful respect for memory's complexity and the edifices upon which our shared future might be based. From both of our struggles for independence, there are themes to be recovered. There are versions of nationalism that, while they delivered and defended freedom, fell short in that freedom that comes from an inequality of participation, socially, economically, and indeed gender terms. For both the Irish and Greek stories are rich, containing as they do, Moments of emancipation, some gained, some squandered, 
as well as periods of suffering, experiences that equip us well for the challenge of envisioning and constructing a European Union of humanity shaped to meet the needs of all our citizens. In order for this to become a reality, we must become ever closer, assessing our vulnerabilities, our different resources, being willing to share, becoming better listeners in our discourse sharing. I think, too, our hopes, our shared challenges, require a full engagement of mind, will and action. For it is through a recognition of the curative and life-enhancing power of culture, too, I suggest that we can recall once more the resolute courage that is needed to be different, to take a stand, to prevail. Social Europe, for example, means putting the monetary and the fiscal in their place as tools, instruments, not as determinants of the lives of European peoples. We must endeavour to achieve a deepening of deliberative democracy, addressing the growing alienation from the European Union's institutions felt by so many of our citizens. It is measures of inclusion that offer an alternative to political extremism and populism that provide the European institutions with a necessary, if now fragile, legitimacy. It is by fostering deeper political-economic literacy among our peoples that we may bring about the necessary ecological-social paradigm shift, which I suggest is urgently required, not just as a gesture towards intergenerational solidarity, but as a means of avoiding our legacy to the next generation, being that of a hostile, conflict-torn and volatile planet Earth. The European publics have paid a severe price by being made mute in the false suggestion that economic policy-making is beyond a general comprehension by citizens, that only one set of economic assumptions, neither transparent nor economically verifiable, should prevail for all. The financial crisis of 2008-09 the ensuing economic recession and the reaction to it impacted severely on both of our countries, as we are only too well aware. The credibility of the intellectual tool and discipline that is political economy is severely damaged by the enforced exile of philosophy from the discourse of political economy, the enforced exile of ethics and indeed morality. The crisis established the phenomenon of what has been legitimised as punitive economics, in which austerity became a single hegemonic policy mantra, indeed not to be questioned, an instrument that was often enforced mercilessly as a means of protecting and maintaining the failing economic status quo, sourced as it was in the neoliberal paradigm that which we in Europe have endured for some four decades now. The crisis also resulted in the forced privatisation of Greek and Irish infrastructure and assets imposed by international lenders as a condition for financial assistance. However, if I may borrow from Leonard Cohn, there is a crack in everything that is how the light gets in. In recent years, we now have in the discourse of orthodox international institutions, including the OECD and World Bank, issuing statements that amount to a vault fast on austerity, claiming that they have now come to realise that it can be self-defeating and counterproductive. It is now clear to even some of those from a fervent neoliberal perspective that austerity is a damaging 
indeed catastrophic impacts on the societies on whom it was imposed a decade ago, leading to yawning inequality, a hemorrhaging of solidarity and political extremism. This omission, however, becomes an exercise in bad faith if what is to be an offer in the coming years, be it from the new commission or the European Central Bank, if it is to be the same ordering of priorities, what is monetary and fiscal, taking precedence over what is social and cohesive. The OECD recognises that a new growth narrative is now required, one that places the well-being of people at the centre of its efforts. Its recently established advisory group, Beyond Growth Towards a New Economic Approach, contains progressive thinkers, such as Professor Mariana Mazzucato. And I am hopeful that its recommendations published last October, if implemented widely, can assist in making economics itself as a discipline of intellectual rigour and transparency fit for purpose again, so that it might address, as it did in previous crises, our contemporary challenges. Our conception of economic progress, therefore, needs to contain an urgent response to climate change, sustainability, and an inequality that in its deepening is threatening democracy itself. Economic stability must extend beyond any non-transparent, individualised form of material prosperity to include indicators of social well-being, cohesion, empowerment, fulfilment, and with a deep and urgent understanding of the ecological constraints we face. We must all work together to ensure that the recommendations of this group's report will be given reality through member states' policies. It must be brought to the town halls and the villages, rather than becoming some mumbled confusion within an iron cage of administrative inability to change. We in the European Union have the intellectual resources. We must muster the courage and the compassion necessary to create an emancipatory, sustainable development model, not only for our own peoples, but for other regions in our neighbourhood. For despite its mixed historical experience, including the numerous historic achievements of our continent, many centuries of which were tarnished by war and suffering, the European Union today still retains a capacity from its legacy of thought, including and importantly, from its Greek contribution on the rational, from its historic commitment to intellectual discourse that led to the undoing of the trammels of empire and that informed the struggle against imperialism. Fundamental morality requires that we recognise the courage and selflessness of those who fought and struggled for freedom and independence. We must never forget the human loss that was suffered in opposing and defeating fascism, including the heavy price paid in Greece by its people, who were exemplary in their farms, villages, towns and cities, a contribution we must never forget. For we in our time have been given a unique opportunity and indeed I suggest responsibility to assert, deepen and where necessary, reassert those founding values of democracy, cohesion, shared prospects, human rights and the rule of law in an increasingly interdependent world in which those values are challenged. Let us do it together. This year marks the 45th anniversary of the establishment of diplomatic relations between our two countries, celebrating that long relationship and a deepening friendship assisted by this visit and recent visits 
May I now invite you all distinguished guests to stand and join me in a toast to the good health of President Pavlopoulos and his family, to the peace and prosperity of the people of Greece, and to the enduring affinity and bonds of friendship between our two peoples. Sloincha. Stenikiasas. Gremila Market. Perpana.